This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the angels cannot stand in your presence but cover their faces. And yet we come here as sinners into your awesome presence. And we come, we draw near with boldness through your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom our sins have been forgiven, through whom death has been overcome, through whom Satan and evil has been defeated. And Lord, even the person here with the greatest faith is enjoying so little of what you offer us through Jesus. And we ask that we would have our hearts enlarged by your Holy Spirit to enter into the fullness of the inheritance that Jesus has won for us, not through our works, but only through Christ. Fill us with a sense of his glory, we pray, God. And as we open your holy word together, may your spirit give us a glimpse of the glory of our Redeemer and help us to walk in greater love obedience, and faithfulness to him, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our children can go off to their time of ministry, little ones downstairs, the older ones over here to my right. And the rest of us are going to open up the Word of God together, turning again to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians as we continue a series we started a few weeks ago called power in weakness, exploring Paul's spirituality of the cross and of the resurrection. And we are in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5 today, and I believe it will be on the screen behind me. Yes, there it is. And we're starting at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Let's read together the Word of God. Oh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul writes, "'Therefore we do not lose hearts.'" Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, seen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal." For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the, bo- in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him. 
whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of God. It's been 40 years now since Frederick Kurzweil died. He's been dead for 40 years, but his son, Ray, refuses to accept the passing of his father. And for decades now, Ray Kurzweil has been collecting letters and photographs, every piece of data about his dearly beloved father that he can find, and he's been feeding them into his computer with the goal of digitally recreating his father so that Frederick Kurzweil can live again. Now, I should explain that Ray Kurzweil has 21 honorary doctorates, and he's the chief engineer for Google. This is not the project of some crank down in his basement. This is one of the world's leading futurists and technologists. And Ray Kurzweil, in fact, is just one of a very large project called transhumanism. And the transhumanists believe that it's time for human beings to seize control of the process of evolution. It's been long and slow, it's taken millions of years, but now, with technology rapidly and exponentially increasing, we have the power, as human beings, to achieve the greatness that is ours. And so these transhumanists, funded with millions of dollars behind them, are planning on reversing aging at the cellular level, at inserting nanobots into our bloodstream, of gradually replacing our limbs and our organs with vastly upgraded prosthetics, and even in the end, bypassing the body altogether, scanning our brains, and uploading them into the cloud so that this Mere jelly is no longer necessary. That is the project of transhumanism, something you will be hearing more and more of over the years as our technology indeed increases. That might sound like a bizarre project, but I think Paul would feel some sympathy towards what the transhumanists are after. Because Paul, too, is not content with life as it is. And Paul knows by bitter and painful experience how difficult and frustrating life in this world can be, and he too longs for some kind of transcendence beyond ordinary, mortal, human life. And in Paul's life, he's experiencing something strange that even as his, his outer nature, his outer person is wasting away, is fading away, is being destroyed, he's experiencing a strange inner renewal. And by the, the outer self, the outer man, Paul means here, our lives in this evil age, this age of sin and suffering. It's our body, but it's also our minds and our emotions. It's you as other people see you from the outside. 
wasting away, being destroyed. And for Paul, this is no mere figure of speech. Paul was a man who knew what it was like to be rejected, beaten, and abused. And he had a calling to share in the sufferings of Christ as he made the gospel known throughout the world. And even though most of us here are not apostles with a special call from Jesus, we too, if we've lived in this world long enough, have had at least a small taste of pain and frustration, and we're all experiencing irresistible decay in our bodies. And I'm standing here looking over a crowd of people who are all slowly dying. The process of death is at work in all of our bodies. For some, the process is a bit slower, for some a bit quicker, but we are all dying. Every single one of us is a terminal patient with no hope, mortality rate of 100%, all headed towards death. And Paul experiences this in his own life, in his own body, but he knows that as a believer, this is not the whole story. Because even while on the one hand he's experiencing frustration and decay and death, he is also tasting something of new life in the Spirit. The new creation has already dawned within the heart of Paul and every single person who has begun to follow Jesus. There is a little seed of the new heavens and the new earth that is already in our hearts once we have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And so we experience, paradoxically, frustration and difficulty and death, but also this experience of our lives being renewed day by day. As we taste the mercies of the Lord that are new every morning, Somehow, in the midst of all this difficulty and decay, we experience supernatural strength and life from God. And we find in our own experience that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And it really is a miracle, like a spark in the middle of the ocean that somehow is not extinguished, we are all experiencing the miraculous supernatural life of God in these dying bodies. And what Paul is looking forward to is the goal of that whole process, which is experiencing the glory of God, the unlimited power and presence and beauty and radiance of his Creator. What Paul and you and I were created to behold and participate in the beauty of God, to lose ourselves in contemplation and love. The weight of glory. An experience so massive and heavy that 
all the afflictions and troubles we experience in this life, by comparison, seem light and momentary, not even worth comparing. And this is, Paul's not being glib here. This is not some, you know, pious platitude, some polite Christian thing he feels obligated to say. Paul knew pain. If any disciple of Jesus knew pain, it was Paul. He knew discouragement. He knew betrayal. He knew what it was like to be beaten to within, within an inch of his life. And he was not a hard and sensitive person. He felt those afflictions deeply in his soul. And as he writes earlier in this letter, there was a time when we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Nevertheless, even under these crushing afflictions, these burdens under which Paul staggered, there was this great faith that rose up in Paul's heart as he contemplated the glory that God was holding out for him. Not even worth comparing. And if we read carefully, we see that Paul is not saying that we get this glory despite the sufferings and difficulties of this life. It's actually through them. These afflictions are exactly what is preparing the eternal weight of glory for us, Paul says in verse 17. Paul's sufferings, therefore, and our sufferings are not meaningless. They're not meaningless because we are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. And as disciples who are not above their master, we're following behind him in the path from death to resurrection and from shame to glory. And therefore, discipleship for Paul is fixing our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Walking with Jesus for Paul is about a steady and unflinching gaze on our future hope in Christ. This life is not all there is. This life even with Jesus, is not all there is. And most of our faith is in something that is still to come. So if you are dissatisfied, even with life with Jesus as it is now, you should be, because God has far more that he's holding out for you. And there's this strange paradox, because we're called to look at what is unseen, to gaze upon what is actually invisible. And when we do this, this seemingly very foolish and counterintuitive thing, when we stare at what is invisible, by faith, the Spirit of God begins to transform our imaginations so that what is unseen actually takes on a deep reality in our hearts. 
I think we all tend to make the mistake in thinking that what is around us, what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, this is what is concrete and real. And the things of heaven and the future with God, all that seems quite vague and foggy and shadowy, quite unreal. But actually, the reverse is true because everything we see around us, even our own selves, are fading away. There's entropy at work, there is decay at work, and what seems so real and substantial and permanent in this life, in fact, is transient. It's winding down, and one day it will vanish. And Paul's saying, our outer nature, our outer man, it's going to fall away like scaffolding, And our inner person, the inner reality, is what's going to shine forth with the glory of God. What is hidden now from other people, and even from ourselves much of the time, is who we really are in Christ. And one day, that is going to shine forth as the sons of God are revealed for who we are. Now, we have to be careful that we understand this inner outer distinction properly because Paul is not cutting human beings in half and speaking of an outer body that is essentially worthless and an inner soul that is all that God values. The Corinthians would have been very familiar with that because Greek teaching and philosophy was all about the body is the prison of the soul. Your body is contemptible, It's just a tomb that you're dragging around. And the goal of spirituality is for your spirit or your soul finally to be released from the confines of your body and float upwards to be merged with God. And a lot of Christians have kind of absorbed this very ancient thinking, but it's not Christian. The idea that the body is bad and the soul is good is not a Christian teaching. The idea that the goal of spirituality is for our naked soul to merge with the divine is not Christian teaching. Because God made us as one entity, body and soul, together. In fact, the body was made first in Genesis, and then the Spirit of God was breathed into it. God made our bodies, and he declared them to be very good. And salvation, Old Testament and New Testament, is not redemption from our bodies, but the redemption of our bodies. Your body matters to God. And God sent his son not just to save your immaterial soul, but also to save your body. To one day raise you physically from the dead in glory. Because salvation is for our entire selves. You know, right, that human beings are not meant to be angels. Angels are spirits without bodies, and I'm sure they're very happy. But we would not be happy floating around without a body, because that's not how God made us. That would be a strange and inhuman experience. We were made to live life on this earth in this body. And for Paul, the resurrection of the body is an essential part 
of the gospel. I believe in the resurrection of the body. We confessed that last week in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he went on at great length emphasizing that if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, then we will not rise from the dead, and therefore, of all people, we are the most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if our spirits just go to heaven and our bodies sleep forever in the ground, there is no gospel and there is no good news because we will not have been completely saved the way God intends. Paul's hope and the hope of the New Testament is always the resurrection of the dead when Christ returns. And I think for many Christians, our hope terminates on going to heaven to be with Jesus when we die with nothing after that. But actually, in the New Testament, that intermediate state between death and resurrection is not very important. And the New Testament writers spend very little time reflecting on that. I'm sure that will be a happy and restful state as we go to be with Jesus in our spirits, whatever that means, but it's not by any means the fullness of our inheritance. And even those who have gone before us who are with Christ are groaning and longing for their own resurrection so they can be completely human again. The intermediate state is a waiting room. It's a very comfortable waiting room, but it's still only a waiting room. And if you spend any time in a waiting room, you know there's, there's limits to how long you can endure that. The point is to go on into what God has planned for us the resurrection of the body. The point is not to be an unclothed spirit, to be naked, that would be uncomfortable, but to be further clothed in our resurrection bodies. You know, Paul was a tent maker by profession, and he spent much of his time cutting leather and sewing it together and building tents. And in that time, he had plenty of space for reflection and thinking of how his occupation was kind of a sign of the gospel. I thought, you know what, Our, my frail body is just like one of these tents. It's a temporary dwelling. It serves its purpose for now, but there's a day when it's going to be struck down and dismantled and rolled up and put away. But it is going to be replaced with a building from God. A permanent structure, not built by human hands, but built by God himself. This should remind us of the transition in the Old Testament from the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple is the resurrection body, which is it's already ours in Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead. And one day we're going to share in that as well, as part of the new creation. You know, God is creating a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. Behold, I make all things new, God says, and what is dying and mortal and fading is going to be completely replaced with something beautiful and full of life. 
That is entirely in the future. And so we have this posture of hope. But there is one part of the new creation, one physical part of the new creation that already exists in the present. And that is the risen body of Jesus. The first fruits of those who are risen from the dead. The new creation is perfectly present in the flesh of Jesus at the right hand of God. And when we take of communion together, we're participating not in the soul or the spirit of Jesus or his divine nature. We are sharing in his body and blood. And somehow, in a mysterious way, we are participating in the resurrection body of Jesus himself. And we're taking the life of the new creation of God's future into our painful and meager presence. And we're being renewed day by day through the risen body of Jesus. Of course, in the meantime, we groan, Paul says. We groan because we feel the, the disconnect and the pain of knowing what God has promised us, and yet in this life, experiencing what falls so far short of that. And we struggle with the pain and frustration of life in this world, and in fact, we're filled with an agonized longing for what God has for us. I know there are some Christians who think that groaning is shameful, that God is angry with you if you're not completely happy all the time and have a big smile on your face and are dancing to celebratory worship songs. They think it's wrong to cry at a funeral or to fall on your face and ask God, how long, O Lord? They think that betrays a lack of faith. That's not how Jesus feels. And our Lord stood at the grave of Lazarus, knowing he would raise him from the dead in a few moments, and yet Jesus wept. He wept in anger at the ravages of death among his friends. And if we never groan, if we only sing songs of joy and celebration and dancing in this church, and we never sing songs of grief and lament and longing, that's not faith. That's denial. It's a religious denial that fails to engage with the reality and the pain of a broken world and broken lives. And so we groan. But they're groans not of despair, but of longing. And they arise in our hearts from the Spirit of God. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose of resurrection, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 5, is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The Spirit of God at work in your life is 
a down payment of your resurrection. It's a deposit on your full inheritance to receive everything that God has promised you. And as you feel his promptings in your heart, as you experience his presence, as you participate in his work of daily renewal in your inner person, transforming you into the image of Christ, helping you walk by faith, you are experiencing God's guarantee of what is to come. Resurrection life with Christ forever. I don't know if any of you have seen the TV series, The Good Place. Yeah, I hear a few laughs, right? And oh, how can I describe this quickly? Four people have died, and they end up in what they think is the good place. They're actually all quite bad people, and they think they've arrived in the good place through some kind of clerical error. As it turns out, it's actually the bad place in disguise, and they're being tormented. And in the end, after four seasons, they escape from the bad place, and they manage to make their way into the good place. And the final season is kind of a secular picture of heaven where people are experiencing the fulfillment of all their dreams and all their longings. Every experience they might have desired is theirs without limit. But the writers struggled to wrap up the series. And in the end, they, they resolved it like this. They had to put a doorway into the good place in the forest where when people were finally at the end of all their desires and there was nothing more to experience or to wish for, they could one by one, some quite soon, some after hundreds of years, would walk through this doorway into oblivion. Even heaven had to have a suicide option built in in the end, essentially. And it actually makes sense in a way because the writers of The Good Place were trying to depict heaven without God, eternity without Christ. Heaven as simply this world's multiplied by ten or a hundred. And really, you cannot have unending life without an infinite source of satisfaction to sustain you, because eventually you will run down and become bored, and nothing more will interest you, and then it's just time to flip the off switch. Joseph Piper wrote that the satisfaction of our thirst, this thirst every human being has, cannot consist simply in the continued existence of the thirster. If everyone has some kind of dissatisfaction in their heart, some kind of deep longing, you can't fix that for someone by saying, you will live forever with this thirst. That will never satisfy the thirst for God that we all have deep down. And so for Paul, what he's looking forward to ultimately is not eternity or immortality or even a resurrection body or all his tears being wiped away. Paul's ultimate goal is to be at home with the Lord. And what Paul longs for most of all is communion with Christ. I think we have to be very careful that as we think of the new heavens and the new earth, we don't get distracted by all kinds of secondary things, human flourishing and culture and art and creativity, and those will exist. 
with the blessing of God, but the center of the new creation is the lamb that was slain. And our highest joy in the new Jerusalem will be to fall on our faces in adoration of our Redeemer. And with this focus on Jesus, Paul has one aim right now, and that is to please Christ. It doesn't matter whether he's in his present body or in some intermediate state or even in his resurrection body, his goal always is to please Christ. His single focus is to win the approval of the Lord Jesus, who bought me with his precious blood and called me to his service. That is Paul's single focus. He has one aim, and that is to hear Jesus say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that, for Paul, will make everything worth it. Death, decay, hardship, humiliation, discouragement, everything will be worth it, and Paul will gladly suffer the loss of all things so that he might win Christ. So right now, in his body, in this present life, Paul is making the choices that will help him toward that all-consuming goal. I'm so struck in this passage that while Paul's eyes may be focused on his future hope, his feet are firmly planted in this world. Hope for Paul is a stimulant, not a depressant or a narcotic. I must have said this to you five or six times, and I will say it a seventh time again with this passage, that when Paul talks about the end times, it's always with the goal of following Jesus now. It's always about discipleship now. And I honestly cannot think of a single passage in Paul where he talks about eschatology or the coming of Jesus or the resurrection without immediately speaking about ethics, obeying Jesus now. And if you're like me, you have all kinds of very speculative questions about what happens between death and resurrection. Paul honestly does not really care. It's about how can I follow Jesus in this world now? In Luke chapter 13, a man comes to Jesus and asks him a speculative question. Lord, will there only be a few people who are saved? Do you remember how Jesus answers that speculative theological question? He says to the man, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Don't be distracted by theological speculations and neglect your own eternal destiny. This is not a game where we smoke cigars and lean back in our leather chairs and debate interesting ideas. This is about our eternal future, which is shaped by our choices now. And this vision of the future Paul has does not make the present uninteresting or irrelevant. It, in fact, invests it with a deep significance. 
Because one day we will all stand before Jesus on the day of judgment to give an account of what we did in our bodies now. And notice, Christians do not get a pass from the day of judgment. We must all appear before Christ. We don't get to say, oh, I was baptized as a baby or I made a decision for Jesus at the age of 11. We don't even get to say, I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ so my life doesn't matter. The day of judgment in the Bible is always on the basis of our works, of our deeds, whether good or bad. That is always what is being looked at on the day of judgment. I want to make it clear. It's not that our works and our deeds and our choices somehow earn a place in God's new creation, but they are the evidence and the only evidence accepted before God of whether you truly were a child of His, whether you were genuinely born of the Spirit, whether your faith was dead or living. The only basis of confidence on the judgment day, Scott Haifman says, is the good deeds that constitute living by faith. And there's no evading that expectation. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable of the sheep and the goats being divided on the day of judgment. And the basis for that judgment is what those people did or did not do. Whether or not they visited those in prison, or gave water to the thirsty, or fed the hungry, or clothed the naked. It's what we do and do not do that determines our destiny as followers of Jesus, that are the evidence that the Spirit of God has really been at work in our lives. I believe that through Paul today, the Spirit is calling each of us to fix our eyes on what God in His grace has called us to to follow Jesus' counsel, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know, the people who have done most for God and their neighbors in this world are those who are totally committed to their hope in Christ. And we all need to exercise the discipline of cultivating that hope of holding it before our eyes every day and reminding ourselves why we are following Jesus. This is not the whole story. And we will become discouraged and despair and give up if we imagine that this is the whole story. There is a new creation coming. There is going to be a renewal of the heavens and the earth, the wiping away of all tears, the redemption of our bodies, the restoration of of all things. And it's all through the grace of God. It's a divine gift. It's a building not made by human hands. Whatever our transhumanist friends may imagine they can achieve by technology, 
It's a gift of God. Not the Tower of Babel rising up to heaven, but the new Jerusalem descending to earth. God is the one who has fashioned us for this purpose. And the Spirit is His guarantee that we will participate in God's new world. And it is an amazing sign of the grace of God that we can sit here and look towards our future not with dread, but with joy and with hope and with expectation all through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads now and thank him for this indescribable gift. Heavenly Father, who are we to hear these words spoken over us, to be recipients of your glory, to be given the gift of a resurrection body, to be able to walk through this world with this hope as an anchor for our souls. Lord, we pray that you would use the scripture we meditated on today and these words we heard to help us follow Jesus more completely, more passionately, more fully. Lord, we want it to be our single aim to please him, to stand before him on the day of judgment and to hear his own well done, good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master. And you know, Lord, that we are distracted by many things in this world. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak deep within our hearts what you have planned for us. And may we hear in our souls the echoes of the music of the New Jerusalem and live our lives on tiptoe, leaning forward into the future that you have for us. And we pray together, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF.com hyphen georgia.org thanks for listening